John 8, John 8. As a church, we've been walking through the Gospel of John all this year. With um, uh, We took a break this summer. We've been getting back into it the last couple of weeks. The whole book of John was written so that you and I might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that by believing, by having faith, and by receiving, by putting our, our faith in Jesus, that we might have life in his name. The whole Gospel of John is written so that you and I could have life and joy in the name of Jesus Christ. The whole Gospel of John is written so that you and I could have the, the water of life, that we could have the bread of life, that we could see the light of the world. The whole Gospel of John is written so that you and I would, would know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And specifically, since the beginning of John 7... Um, we've seen that Jesus is in, there's a scene that's unfolding, and Jesus is in Jerusalem at the Feast of Booths, and that's been happening until, that's been happening at the beginning of John 7, that will continue till the end of chapter 9. And the Feast of Booths was a, one of the three-time yearly celebrations that the Israelites had when they would come up to Jerusalem to celebrate the coming of the um, to celebrate the fact that the Lord had led them through the Exodus uh, experience through the wilderness. And to celebrate the Feast of Booths, they would kind of go camping. They'd pitch a tent, and they would pitch a tent in their front yard or on top of their, on top of their roof or in their backyard, and they'd kind of go camping to cel- uh, just to celebrate and, uh, all that God had done in the event of the Exodus. That's why it's called the Feast of Booths, the, the Feast of the Succoth. And... Um, we, we, that's important context as we've seen because Jesus has said that I am the light of the world, that just as God led his people through the wilderness in a pillar of fire and a cloud of smoke, so, God, so Jesus says that he will lead his new people into freedom as the light of the world. And so we pick up in John 8, starting in verse 31, where he says this. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are the offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you would say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There's one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, If anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? 
Jesus answered. If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. But you have not known Him. I know Him. If I were to say that I do not know Him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know Him, and I keep His word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, Before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Father in heaven, we pray that you would help us to see your son, our I am, who alone can give us freedom. Father, we pray that you would help us to know your freedom and that we would be free indeed. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Last two weeks or so, there's been a internet sensation, um, a, uh, a star, uh, a, a random uh, person on a, uh, on, with a song came out, and I won't say who because it's already politically charged and polarized, but the, uh, he, I, he came out with this song, and I was listening to this song, and I went and listened to some of the other songs that um, he, he had out, and he had this one called, I've Got to Get Sober. And the chorus goes like this. He said, Lord, I know that upstairs there's an old man who cares. And one day he'll set me free. I think that there are a lot of us who want to be free. We want to be free from our sins. We want to be free from lust. We want to be free from anger. We want to be free from from shame, we want to be free. The the message of freedom appeals to all of us because all of us know what it is to live as those who are slaves. All of us know what it is to live as those who are in chains and in bondage to our own sin. And we are looking and we spend a lot of time in our lives for ways to distract us from that freedom. But Jesus, in this passage, tells us that freedom is available for you and for me. And if the Son sets us free, we will be free indeed. So what I want to do today is I want to talk about the freedom that Jesus gives, the freedom that Jesus gives, and then I want to say if if we're going to have this freedom, there's two things that we need to acknowledge, two things. So, but first I'm going to talk about the freedom that Jesus gives, and then it then we'll say, if I want to be free, I have to accept X and then Y. So here's the freedom that Jesus gives, and I'm going to start in verses 35 and 36. It says, The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So now Jesus here, he's saying something which is pretty patently true, that the person who is a slave in in Greco-Roman society, their life is impermanent and unstable. At any moment, they could be bought or sold. At any moment, they could be given away. At any moment, their, their very identity, the fact that they belong to somebody else, is, is in flux. And what Jesus is saying, he's using that as an analogy for all those who are trapped in their sin. He's saying, that's what sin does. If you, if you are a, a slave to your sin... If you are in slavery, then your life is in flux and your identity is not stable and you have no place to rest your head. But if you are a son or a daughter, then you have a place that will never be taken from you. Particularly in the Roman world, if you are an adopted son or daughter. See, it was easy, all you fathers can say, Thank goodness. It was easy in the Roman Empire to disown a child. It was really hard in the Roman Empire to disown an adopted child. Because once a child was adopted, they were permanently part of the family. And of course, there were ways to get around it, but there was this sense that once you adopted a child, they were almost more part of your family than if they had been born into it. Now, here's why that's important. Look in verse 36. 
He says, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. What Jesus is saying is if the Son, he's referring to himself, says, if the Son, if me, if I set you free, you will be free indeed. Now, in Jewish families in the first century, which is everybody that's listening to Jesus at this time, in Jewish families in the first century, if a father or a son set a slave free, very often they would be adopted into the family. That they themselves would become sons or daughters. So when Jesus says, if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Jesus is not just saying that the bonds of your slavery and your legal standing before the law will change but rather that you will be brought into the family and adopted as a child of God. The promise that Jesus is giving us here in verses 35 and 36 is that you and I can become free as sons and daughters of the king. That you and I can become adopted into the family of God that we can have a place to belong, a place that can never be taken from us because the Son does not lose those who the Father has given to him. And you'll notice here the, the, the background of the Feast of Booths because what was it that they were celebrating at the Feast of Booths? They were celebrating the fact that the children of Israel were brought out of slavery and into the Promised Land. And you'll notice here that the certainty in this statement in verse 36, if the Son sets you free, not you can be free, not you might be free, not you may be free, not he sets the conditions for you to be free. He says, if the Son sets you free, you will be free. There's a, a certainty that comes that if the Son has set you free, if the Son dies on the cross for your sins, if the Son is nailed on the cross for what you and I have done, then we will be free. This is the positional freedom that Jesus is offering all those who would have faith in Him and all those who would believe in Him. That if you and I are adopted into the family of God, if we are his own sons and daughters, then our position can never be revoked. It can never be removed. It can never be dissolved. It can never be taken away. There's a permanence for this. Now, that's the positional freedom that Christ is offering us. He's also offering us a progressive freedom. Because you and I know that even though we are sons of the living God, even though we do have a secure place in the Father's house, that often we still live like we're slaves. That often we still live as if we are in bondage to sin, as if sin is still the master. And so Jesus is offering a positional freedom in verses 35 and 36, but he also offers a progressive freedom for those who are Christians. So he says in verse 31, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. So now notice here in verse 31 how he's talking to those people who had put their faith in him. They had raised the hand at the altar call or come down front or said yes at VBS. And Jesus turns to these same people and he says, if you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples. Jesus is not saying their faith is disingenuine. He's not saying that they hadn't put their faith, but he's saying that there is a true faith versus a false faith. And he's inviting them to recognize the nature of true faith, that true faith leads to abiding. True faith leads to abiding. So he says, if you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples. Not because you're saved by the good things that you do, but rather because if you're saved, you'll abide. So he says, if you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples. And notice how this abiding in the word of Christ leads to truth in verse 32. And you will know the truth. So if you and I abide in the word of Christ, if we're, if we're reading our Bibles and we're listening to the sermon be preached and we're memorizing scripture and we're talking about scripture with other Christians, if we abide in that word, if we abide in that word, then we will know the truth. And as we know the truth, we will be set free. 
So the question is, are we set free when we first become Christians? Or are we set free when, as we abide in the truth? And the answer is yes. That we have a positional freedom that is totally secure, that cannot be revoked, cannot be removed in Christ. And yet we also have a progressive freedom that the longer that we live as Christians, the more we can walk in freedom from sin, the more that we can walk in freedom from our old ways, the more that we can walk as those who are truly sons. In other words, if you and I are truly adopted into the family of God, we will live less and less like slaves. This is the same kind of thing that the rest of the New Testament says. So Galatians 5.1 says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And then again, Paul will say in Galatians 5.13, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. And then in 2 Corinthians 3.17, Now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And even Peter says it. Live as people who are free. Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. So there's a positional freedom that comes when you and I put our faith in Jesus, when we receive Him, when we, when we follow Him, when we believe in Him, that you and I are free and our position cannot be revoked, it cannot be removed. And there's a progressive freedom that comes as you and I continue to walk more and more according to His ways. That more and more we, we put sin to death and more and more we mortify our old ways and more and more we walk in the light as he is in the light. This is the freedom that Jesus is offering us. Not just freedom from the consequences and the penalty of sin, but freedom from the power of sin. Not just freedom from eternal destiny, but freedom to present day life. Not just freedom from sin, but freedom for God. And this is what Jesus is offering to everyone who's standing there listening to him in this day and to everyone who is sitting here listening to him today. Freedom is being offered to you and I today. And the question is, do we want it? Do you want to be free? Do you want to put that sin to death? Do you want to let go of your anger? Do you want to snap the power of lust in your life? Do you want to be free? And if the answer is yes, there are two things that you have to acknowledge, two things that you have to admit, two requirements that you and I have to come to before we can experience the freedom that Christ has for us. Number one, if I am to be free, if I am to be free, I must acknowledge that I am first a slave. If I am to be free, I must acknowledge first that I am a slave. Verse 33, the the Jews answer Jesus, says, They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. Now stop. All you have to do is read the Old Testament to know that that's not the whole story. There's been plenty of times where they've been slaves they are referring to that their spirit has not been broken. It's a little bit of an exaggeration. Okay, how is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Now notice here that Jesus said, what he doesn't do is he doesn't say, you do know that you all serve the Roman emperor, right? you do know that Caesar is on the coin that you all pay for things with, right? He doesn't say that. He doesn't go that direction. But he he points at truer, deeper, longer-lasting, more powerful slavery in their lives. Everyone who practices sin, everyone who lives in sin, everyone who does sin, that person is a slave to sin. Everyone whose lifestyle, whose habits, whose, whose conduct is defined as sinful, that person is a slave to sin. And Jesus continues down in verse 37. He says, I know that you are offspring of Abraham. Now, listen to what he's saying. He's saying, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. So he's pointing out a distinction between what they're claiming to be true about themselves, that they are children of Abraham, and the truth. 
So in verse 39, he says, Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you'd be doing the works that Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. Jesus is pointing out the difference between what they claim to be true about themselves and what is actually true. They claim that Abraham is their father, and they mean that in more than just a biological sense. They mean that that they live like Abraham, that they carry all the same family traits. Now, you can go and read Genesis 12 through uh, 24. Um, It's a great section of the Bible, and you can look at Abraham, and he has plenty of faults. Plenty of faults, starting off with chapter 12, and it just gets worse. But you know what he never did? He never murdered. Lied, sure. Adultered, sure. Not totally honest, sure. A little bit cowardly, sure. Stretch the truth, sure. But he never murdered. Never murdered. And this is Jesus' point. That if you were really Abraham's children, why would you seek to kill me? If you were really Abraham's children, why would you seek to put me to death? So Jesus says, you have a father but it's not Abraham. He says this in verse 38. He says, I speak of what I have seen with my father and you what you have heard from your father. So Jesus is implying that they have a father. And and he says again in verse 41, you are doing the works your father did. They respond, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. They say, well, fine, maybe we're not Abraham's children, but we're children of God. God created us. We're we're children. And it's true that oftentimes in the Old Testament, Israel is called the Son of God. And Jesus' response is this in verse 42. If God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Jesus is saying, if, if God was really your father, you would love me. You wouldn't reject me. You wouldn't be allergic to my presence. And Jesus will go on to say in verses 45 through 47, because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason you do not hear them is you are not of God. That Jesus is not allowing them to claim that God is their father. Because God is a God of love and they hate. God is a God of truth and they lie. He's not allowing them to claim Abraham as their father because Abraham never murdered the messenger of God. So this is Jesus' conclusion about where the Pharisees come from in verse 44. He said, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So what has Jesus just said? Jesus has said, Abraham doesn't murder, so you're not Abraham's children. God speaks the truth, and you're not speaking the truth, so God is not your father. Saying, But both of those character traits do come from somebody in the Bible. Both of those traits come from Satan. And so Jesus' conclusion about the Jews is that they are children of Satan. Because Satan was a murderer from the beginning, and he does not stand in truth. Why would Jesus say this to them? Why would Jesus say, this does not seem like Jesus meek and mild. This is not Jesus trying to win friends and influence people. I mean, I, <laughs> I've, I just have never seen somebody say, you're children of Satan, you're liars and murderers, and that seem to go, go over well. Why is Jesus taking this tact? This just seems rude. 
why is Jesus telling them that they're slaves of sin and children of Satan? Here's why. If you never acknowledge that you are a slave, you will never be free. If you never acknowledge that you are a slave, you will never be free. If you are here this morning and you are interested in respectable Christianity and you're interested in in shallow relationships and you're interested in patting each other on the back and you're interested in and you're interested in saying things that build one another up but you're not interested in authentic relationships that get to the root of the issue and get to the root of the soul, and you're not interested in the freedom that Jesus has because you're not interested in admitting that you can be a slave to sin. This is not the Jesus for you. But if you are here, and you're saying, it has been so long since I felt freedom. It's been so long since I have seen the sun come through the slats of my prison cell. And these chains around my wrist chafe with their rust. This is the Jesus for you. If you and I would have the freedom that Jesus gives if you and I would be adopted into the family of God, if you and I would be his children, it means that we first must acknowledge our own sin. We must acknowledge that we often bear more of a semblance to Satan than to the Lord. It means that we must acknowledge that you and I fall short of the glory of God. This is why Paul says in Romans 3, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. What that says is that God gave the law so that you and I would know how far short we fall of it. God gave the law in part so that you and I would see in it a mere reflection of our own sin. So that you and I would know that everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And that includes us. If I would be free, if I would have the freedom that Jesus offers, if I would have liberty in him, it means that I first must acknowledge my own sin. Second, it means that I must acknowledge that only Jesus can save. Only Jesus can save. You'll notice the the ways that Jesus refers to himself in this passage. He refers to himself as the son of the father. In verse 36, says, so if the son sets you free. And then in verse 38, if I speak of what I've seen with my father. Now Jesus is saying that he is of the father. He says in verse 42, if God were your father, you would love me for I came from God and I am here. He says in verse 47, whoever is of God, hears the words of God. Jesus is saying, I'm from God. I, I am the son of the father. He has sent me. And because he is the son of the father, he has the word that gives life. This is why he says in the first, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And why he'll say again in a minute down in verse, down, down in verse 52, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. And in verse 51, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. His word gives life, and his word gives freedom. 
which is why the, the, the Jews can't understand this because they're so in bondage to their own sin. They're so clouded over by their own corruption. And so they, they retort, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? And Jesus responds, he says, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. And she says, yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Jesus says that, that there is a father who seeks my glory. There is one who will lift me up, and he is the one who is the judge of sin. Which is why Jesus can say, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, if anyone abides in my word, remains in my word, dwells in my word, is saturated with my, my word, he will never see death. And the Jews retort, they say, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died as did the prophets, yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? Jesus answered again in verse 54, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you would have known him. You have not known him. I know him. If I were to say I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and I keep his word. And then he says this in verse 56, which sets them off. Because all up until now, he's been trying to tell them by different ways and different angles that he comes from God, that he's the son of the father, that he can set them free. But he says in verse 56, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He says, your, your father, the, the Abraham, who you are calling father, when he saw me coming, when he heard the promises of God, when, when he realized that there was a greater Isaac who would come, he rejoiced. He saw it and he was glad. Jesus is, is, is saying, if you were really of Abraham, you would accept everything that I'm telling you. If you were really Abraham, then this, if you were really of Abraham, if you descended from him, this wouldn't be a problem for you. If you were really Abraham's children, you would believe because Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. And the Jews are still blinded by their own sin. And they say, you are not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? You're not yet 50. How, how is it that you would have seen Abraham who lived thousands of years ago? And Jesus says to them, this laden, heavy statement, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, I want to unpack that statement. If you'll remember the, in the book of Exodus, when God was going to lead the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt, he raised up a liberator, a man named Moses. And Moses was a murderer and did murder an Egyptian who was oppressing an Israelite. And Pharaoh found out about it, and Moses ran off into the wilderness. And Moses was shepherding um, sheep, and one of them kind of got lost, and Moses went down to look for him. And he sees this sight in front of him. It's a bush that is burning, and yet it's not consumed. It's a, it's a bush that is burning, and yet it doesn't go away. It's a bush that is burning, and yet it doesn't dissolve. It's a, there's this bush that's burning. And so Moses is intrigued by this, and he goes up to the bush, and he hears the voice saying to him, Moses, you're on holy ground. Take off your sandals. And so Moses does. And it's the voice of the Lord coming out of the bush that's burning, though it's not consumed. And, and this voice tells him that he has heard the pleas of his children in slavery, and he has raised up Moses to deliver them from their slavery. And Moses says, who is it that I should, that I should tell them has sent me to, to them? And he says, tell them the I am has sent you. Tell them the I am. This is the, the name of the Lord, the name of the God of the Exodus. 
And so Moses goes and he leads them out of slavery. There's the 10 plagues that God sends down to pry the fingers off of Pharaoh, uh, off of it, Israel from Pharaoh. And, and God leads them into the wilderness and he leads them in the wilderness following a pillar of fire by day and, or pillar of fire by night and a cloud of smoke by day. Now think about this, the audience of Jesus at this moment. Here they are at the Feast of Booths. Some of them are probably cranky because they didn't get enough sleep because they were sleeping outside. And they are at the Feast of Booths celebrating all week this glorious work that God had done in leading the children of Israel through the wilderness by following the pillar of fire and the cloud of smoke. Just think about that. Celebrating all week that God had led their ancestors out of slavery. And then Jesus comes and says, I'm the light of the world. I am the I am. Just as Moses followed the pillar of smoke out of the land of Egypt to bring your, uh, to bring your ancestors to slavery, so you can follow me to escape your slavery to sin. You can understand why they pick up stones to throw at him. Because it seems blasphemous. Except that it's true. Except that it's true. That if you and I would be free, if we would have the freedom that Christ gives, not only must we admit our own slavery, Not only must we acknowledge our own slavery, but we also must acknowledge that he can and does. In fact, he's the only one who can save us. We must acknowledge that he is our savior. Christian, if you would be free, if you would see sin broken in your life, if you would walk with God, it means acknowledging that he is the only one that can save you the only one who can give you the freedom that you're yearning for, the only one who can liberate you and break the bonds of slavery. Yes, you must acknowledge your own sin. You must acknowledge your own slavery to sin. But you also must acknowledge that he can and does and indeed wants to save us. So let me give you nine applications. Nine applications. Number one, God is a God who wants to save. God's a God of freedom. We often think of God as a a cruel taskmaster who puts all these burdensome regulations and laws on us and he just wants us to have no fun. But God is a God of freedom. He came to give us freedom. He came that you and I might no longer be slaves to sin. Christian, God is a God of freedom. Number two, if I would be free, it means acknowledging my own sin. If I would be free, it means acknowledging my own sin. It means acknowledging the ways that I am a slave to my own anger or lust or pride. It means acknowledging the ways that the ways that I have given myself over to sin time and time again. The ways that I so subtly and so carefully try to cover it up and hide sin. It means acknowledging my own sin. Number three, if I would be free, if I would be free, it means acknowledging that only he can save. That only he can lead me out of Egypt. Only he can lead me out of my, out, out of my own sin. Only he can break and snap the chains that I've given it in my life. Only he can save me. Number four, if I would be free, 
it means that I must be a son and not a slave. You see how what is promised in this chapter is not only the, the power to defeat sin in our lives, but also a new identity. Everyone who comes to Jesus gets a new identity. This is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians. Behold, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. No longer are they condemned, they're justified. No longer are they slaves, they're redeemed. No longer are they orphans, they're adopted. If you would come to Christ, it means that you must give up your old identity. You must no longer identify yourself by your sin, but you must identify yourself by the work of the Son of God for you. If I would be free, it means that I must be a son and not a slave. Number five, if you are a son or a daughter, if you've been adopted into the family of God, don't live like a slave. Don't live like a slave. In Paul's words, don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. Don't allow yourself to be controlled by the very sins that Jesus died to save you from in the first place. Don't live like a slave if you're a son. If you would call yourself a Christian, it means that you will experience progressive, sometimes slow, sometimes painstaking, watching paint dry on a wall slow, growth. It means that you and I will grow slowly but surely because God finishes what he begins in us. Which means if you call yourself a Christian and you are experiencing no progress for years and years, and you, if you would look at the, the stretch of your life since the time of your conversion till now, you could not identify any ways in which you've concretely grown. I would question if you've had that shift in identities that we've talked about. I would question whether or not you've really entered into the household of God. If you really are a son or a daughter. Christian, if you are a son or a daughter of God, if you put your faith in Jesus, if you've been adopted into his family, don't live like a slave. Number six, I think. If you are a Christian, if you are a son or a daughter, if you are not a slave anymore, then you must abide in the word of God. You must abide in the word of God. That's why he says in verse 31, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And why again, he says in verse 47, whoever is of God hears the words of God. And why again, he says in verse 51, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. If you and I are in Christ, if we put our faith in Jesus, that means that we will keep his word and abide in his word and read his word. Now, if if you're not doing that right now, if, if you're not really disciplined in the Word of God, it sounds more intimidating than it is. All it takes is spend, if you, especially if you're not doing it right now, pick one of the four Gospels. Someone's going to tell you to do Mark because it's shortest, but don't do Mark. Do Matthew or John or Luke. Mark is fine, I guess. And spend 15 minutes in the morning. Someone's going to tell you it's okay to do it right before you go to sleep. That's fine, but don't do that. 15 minutes first thing in the morning, reading through the Word and reading Scripture, and then spend five minutes praying about it afterwards. It's 20 minutes in the morning. And you probably don't even have to change anything with how much you're scrolling through your phone in the morning. You probably just have to be a little bit more efficient with your time use. But even if it does mean you have to wake up 20 minutes earlier, it means you have to wake up 20 minutes earlier, not two hours earlier. What's more important is not that we sit down and read this cover to cover in one sitting, but that we make a daily discipline of abiding and remaining in his word, of letting it saturate us and soak us, of letting it be part of who we are and speak into our life. Another great way to do this is to sit down with, with somebody else across a cup of coffee or, or a meal and talk about a portion of scripture. Maybe sit down with them and go through the portions of Scripture that we've been preaching on and, and talk about these things, that talk about what you're reading in your devotional life. 
And again, it sounds intimidating, but it's not. You just sit down across from the table from them and you say, well, this is what I read. What do you think it means? And they say, I don't know. What do you think it means? And you sit down and you talk about it. It's simple. You do it for an hour every other week. And the, the effect that this would have on your life, I promise you, others in this room would tell you, it, it can be life-changing. But the, the big idea for all this is that if you and I are truly his children, we'll abide in his word. And if still, after that description, that just seems intimidating, please talk to us. We'd love to, to help you do this. This is what we do as a church, help people abide in the word of God. That's not what a church is for. I don't know what it is. We want to help you abide in this word so that you can experience not only the positional freedom that Christ gives, but the progressive freedom. And, and I would encourage you this. The reason that that's important is that you will see your sin more clearly than you ever thought possible. You will never feel so bad about your sin until you've been a believer for five years. You can see all the ways that you've messed up and all the things that you've done wrong. And yet, not only does it show you your sin more clearly, it also shows you salvation more clearly too. It also shows you that as deep as your sin goes, the grace of God goes deeper still. And the only way to understand that, to understand how that penetrates the nooks and crannies and cracks of our lives, is to abide in the Word of God, to read it and meditate upon it to know it and memorize it and chew on it and sleep with it and, and, and eat it, eat it and, and, and to know it and to pray it and to sing it. The only way to know the word of God is to abide in it and to know its truth and to know that the truth will set us free. Which means number seven. Let me give you three particular ways from this passage, my final three applications. Three particular ways in this passage that this passage promises freedom. Three particular ways that this passage promises freedom. Number one, it promises the freedom of joy. Promises the freedom of joy. Your father rejoiced that he would see my day. And he saw it and he was glad. The, the freedom that God gives you and I is joy in the salvation of God. It's joy in the salvation of God. It's joy in the gospel, joy in all that he's done for us and is doing in us and will do for us. If you don't abide in your word, if you don't remain in his word, if you don't know his word, how will you have joy? Number two, number eight really. This passage promises us the freedom of integrity. The freedom of integrity. You notice how many times truth and lying is brought up in this passage? You notice how many times the, the truth and lying is brought up? How, how the way of God is the way of truth and the word of truth versus the way of falsehood? If you are a son or a daughter of God, your life ought to be marked by integrity. It shouldn't be marked by trying to puff yourself up and make things seem better than they are. And it shouldn't be marked by trying to cover up sin and put it under the rug. Rather, it should be marked by an attitude of people who say, let their yes be yes and their no be no. If you and I do not live lives of truth, how can we testify to the one who is the truth? How can we speak about him with any kind of credibility at all? This is why in our church we make a practice of prayers of confession. So we can honestly admit our own sin and honestly confess that only he can save. See, when you find in Jesus all the freedom you need and all the righteousness that you need, you don't need to make yourself seem better than you are. You don't need to make yourself seem more holy than you are because your holiness is in Christ. Christians, if, if we would be free, it at least means from this passage that we would be marked by a particular kind of integrity. It also means that we would be marked by a particular kind of love. 
by a particular kind of love, a love for Christ and a love for his people. You'll notice in this passage, one of the, the, the big commandments that the, the Jews are breaking is thou shalt not murder. And if you're trying to keep the Ten Commandments and you're wondering where to start, it's just an easy one. Don't murder. And, and yet the converse of not murdering is not, is not, well, just keeping murder. It also means being for other people, being selfless and doing what's best for them, using the life that God has given you to serve other people, to receive the word of God. This is what Jesus himself says. If, if you were of the Father, you would love me. Well, Christians, if, if you and I are of the Father, it means we would, must love Christ. And if we would love Christ, it means we'll love his people. And we'll do what's best for them. And we won't seek to cut them down or break them down, but rather we'll seek to build them up. Christian, the freedom of love for neighbors promised us in the gospel because we don't have to put other people, to find, put other people down to find our significance and our worth because that's already been given to us by Jesus. Do you want to be free? This passage has promised to us the freedom that we want, the freedom that we desire. And I would encourage you today, do not waste this moment. Do not waste this moment. If the Spirit has put this on you and He is using this passage to convict you, don't waste that conviction. Don't cover it up. Don't pretend like it's not existing, but rather receive it and grow from it so that you and I might rejoice in the freedom of God. Father in heaven, we thank you that you give us freedom. We thank you that you give us liberation from our slavery. That you break the shackles of our addiction to slavery, uh, addiction to sin. Father, we thank you that you give us freedom and significance that comes from Christ. Father, I pray for anyone here who's never tasted that freedom for the first time, but who's longing for it. Father, would you give them that experience today? And I pray for anyone who's here who maybe they are a son or a daughter, and yet they, they can't. It seems like sin just keeps having the day, and it keeps having victory over them, and they, 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 they still feel like they are enslaved to it. Father, I pray that you would give them the joy of salvation, the joy of Christ. You'd help them to abide in your word. You'd help them to experience true life, true joy. Father, we thank you that your son has promised that if his word abides in us that he also abides. So Father, I pray that as we leave this place today that you would give us a deeper experience of all the love that your son has for us in Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.